James, are we really doing another season? Welcome to season four of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do more good. Do good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what I want to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Welcome to season four of the Do More Good podcast. Here we are, James. Episode 46 of the Do More Good podcast, and it's season four. And we are in 2020. How are you doing? It's a, I'm good, Kenneth. I'm good. We've got a new year, a new decade. More importantly, a new season for Do More Good. <laughs> How are you, great? <laughs> yeah, it's been okay. I probably should just put this into a bit of context, shouldn't we? That we, we, we're, we're on the, the 5th of Jan, Sunday afternoon. Kids are running around, roasting the oven. And we thought we'd record an, a new introduction for our episode that we're about to put out next Tuesday. Because we tried to record an intro before Christmas that referred to or pretended to be after Christmas. And it didn't really work, did it, to be honest? No, none of it makes any sense now, does it? No. All those things that I promised I would give up over Christmas, I've not managed. (laughs) All those resolutions have already gone. Yeah, exactly. But no, my my, my Christmas has been it's been good. But I'm looking I'm looking forward to getting back to work. I'm saying that quietly. So my wife and kids yeah <laughs> i've got I'm, I'm struggling actually i'm i thought by this point i would be fired up and ready to go back i'm settling into the sofa i'm quite enjoying that the movies having you know terrible food on tap at all times yeah I'm struggle yeah. tomorrow no i know i definitely know what that's like but but yeah but it's it's been it's been good have you been have you got any so what we're in the we're in the fifth of, of jan have you have you given up anything for the new year or got any new year's resolutions um, well, I, I went to a birthday party yesterday and I'm um, drinking. Uh, oh. no, so no, not really. I know you're good though. You're you're doing oh. another dry January, aren't you? I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a try. I'm five days in or four days in, and it's going okay so far. Uh, and and to be honest, the amount of weight I put on, I definitely need it. I definitely <laughs> need it. We're actually recording this on Skype, which we always promised that we'd never do. But unfortunately, needs must, and we had to get an intro done for this week's episode. So decided to record it on Skype. But yeah, seeing my face on this mic, I'm, I'm a bit puffy cheek there. I think James. <laughs> doesn't the TV TV adds ten pounds or something, doesn't it? So, the, so they say. Yeah. So they say. So have you got say. any other resolutions then? What have, What have you got planned for this year? Um, you know what? I'm not a big one for resolutions. I must admit, I, it's you know I've I've, I've done pretty well over the Christmas period, like just avoiding social media and, and avoiding kind of work to a certain extent, which has been really good. But then as soon as you kind of come back into the new year and you see everyone setting up these new goals and, you know, I'm going to be the greatest at this, I'm going to achieve this and, and you know, probably each to their own. But I don't know, I'm just, there's nothing specifically in terms of a goal that I want to want to kind of commit to or, or undertake this year. But I am thinking about what new experiences can I find this year? And and I think we've touched on it before. I, I might look at uh, being uh, uh, joining a charity if, if someone will have me as a, as a trustee, potentially, something I've been interested in for a few years. So I might kind of explore that. And I'd like to probably get into a little bit more knowledge around the editing and, and, and the podcast. So I think that's going to be 
bit of a focus for me in terms of kind of learning and, and maybe trying something new this year. What about yeah. yourself? Yeah, nice. I, I think, as I said just, just before we started recording, really, I'm trying to be less boring this year. <laughs> <laughs> do, do some stuff maybe outside of work. That might be good. Um, but get back on the Sunday rides and, and getting out and seeing the guys a bit more and, uh, yeah, having more to, more to life than work. So, yeah. We'll and you, you said you were going to think of going up to north of Scotland? Yeah, yeah. So we've got a big ride coming up, either May or October, uh, around the north coast of Scotland. So um, you were saying that you've already donated about £600 to people's <laughs> fundraising pages. But that, th- this one will be coming your way soon. Don't worry about oh, that. Oh, well, we'll send it over. Send it over. And I'm sure you'll get some support from the, the Do More Good audience. All, all oh, three I'm of sure. them will, yeah. we'll, 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 chip in, we'll chip yeah. in a couple of quid. Well, we should we should crack on with this this week's episode. As I say, it's a, it's a great one. Starting season four, back in the new back in the new year. Hope everyone is is well and has had a great Christmas break and, and is full of energy and enthusiasm for 2020 in this next decade. We'd just like to thank everyone who's who's sent in comments, questions. There's been a bit of activity on Twitter over the festive period, which is great, and we've got some great guests and uh, ideas lined up for for 2020. So, should we crack on, James? Do you want to introduce this week's guest? Let's do that. All right. Nice one. I'll see you soon. Yes. All right, mate. Cheers. So our guest this week was appointed event director of London Marathon Events in 2012 and was a member of the LME board of directors between 2007 and 2010. As well as the Virgin Money London Marathon, LME organises several other world-leading mass participation events, including Prudential Ride London, the Vitality Big Half and Swim Serpentine, to name a few. And leading the marathon was always in his blood, as our guest's father was the co-founder of the iconic 26.2-mile race. And he worked on the very first marathon in 1981. Since then, he has been at every single marathon since, except 2005. Prior to joining London Marathon Events, he ran the leading sportswear retailer sweatshop, which he built up from a single store to 43 nationwide, before selling the business in 2014. He's the trustee of the Twickenham Riverside Trust and the Chris Brasher Trust and passionate about how the London Marathon can fulfil its vision to inspire activity. He's the best dressed guest we've ever had on the Do More Good podcast and a hard man to pin down. But we have finally found some time in his diary to join us on the Do More Good podcast. We would like to welcome Hugh Brasher to the show. Welcome, Hugh. Thank you. I think my wife would be absolutely astounded to find out I'm the best dressed person that's ever been on one of your podcasts. And uh, she would take all the credit um, for any dress sense that I might or might not have. You should see the scruffs that we usually get on, honestly. (laughs) I guess I have to, at this point, kind of interject and give full for full transparency. This is the first time that I've actually that either of us have had a direct boss. On the, on the podcast, so this could be really good for us, James. We, you know, we might get through this unscathed, or this might be the last time you see me in London <laughs> again, and tomorrow I might be looking for a new job. But, we'll see um, how it goes. We'll see how it yeah. goes. No, welcome, yeah. Hugh. Thank you for joining us. So, um, Hugh, it's an amazing story, the background to the marathon. Can you tell us a little bit about how your father developed the idea and your early memories of the race? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, as all great ideas should do, the, uh, the London Marathon started in the pub. So, you know, I think it's very uh, fitting. I'm sitting here with a gin and tonic. I think he would approve of that. 
and uh, the pub was the Dysart Arms, and that's the pub that is, or pub that was actually, it's now a very good restaurant. So, by the way, if you're looking for a Valentine's Night restaurant you want to go to, it is meant to be one of the top restaurants now in London for a um, romantic date. So, can it be free? <laughs> Romance is pretty dead in my house, I think. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, there are other restaurants available on Valentine's <laughs> evenings, I just want to say. So, yeah, so it was 1978. He was a member of Randler Harriers, and people came back from the New York Marathon in 1978 and said what an amazing event it was. Uh, and my father really thought road running, well, he didn't enjoy it. He was a man of the hills and of the mountains, and he loved running off-road. But they kept on and on and on going on about this race, and he thought, right, that's it, I'm going to go. And in 1979, he and John went, and he ran the 26.2 miles, but he'd done all his training beforehand on, on in, in the mountains. And he really got inspired by that event. Then in, in New York was the gun crime capital city of the world. Very different to now in terms of, of what that city is. But then it was really ravaged by, by crime. Yet on that day, it was 20,000 runners, and they were cheered by all areas of society, all areas of community. And New York really, like London, has, has a huge diversity of people. And they all came together and um, celebrated the absolute madness that running 26.2 miles is. <laughs> um, and that's, I think, a phrase he used. And, and, and he wrote a famous article in The Observer in October 79 and said he knew that London had the course. I think that was John Disley knew London had the course, not my father. Um, knew London had the course, but did it have the heart and the soul to welcome the world? And it's a great article. Do, um, you know, read it. People need copies. I'm sure Kenneth can get them a copy. But it's, you know, when my father wrote well, he wrote brilliantly. And that article was absolutely one of his best. He talked about an epiphany of Saul on the road to Damascus. My father had uh, himself won the Olympic gold medal. He had been at the final of at Wembley in 66. He'd been when Gordon Richards won the derby, but he'd never heard the roar, such a roar of the crowd, of the runners, of the everyday people uh, supporting you on the road and on the journey of that 26.2 miles. So it was a great article, and, and, he, and that was the challenge. And amazingly, that was October 78 and March the 29th, 1981. So only 18 months later, um, the first London Marathon took place. And 6,300 people finished. Less than 300 of them were women. And most of the men were stick-thin, skinny, and wearing very dodgy shorts. Um, it's like you were the weekend, James, isn't it? <laughs> it's like me tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, what I think the journey that the marathon has been on and the journey in, of um, inspiring activity, and that's something that London Marathon is so passionate about. That's our vision. And just even in, in the journey that he and John went in terms of putting the event on, which was, you know, to get the permissions in those days. Uh, Sir Horace Cutler was the chairman of, I think it was the GLA at those days. And uh, Sir Horace Cutler basically said that, yes, they could put the route on, but as long as not a penny of public money ever went to the event. They had some amazing help. So Sir Donald Trulford, who was the, my father was, the, the, the article was written in The Observer. Sir Donald Trulford was the editor of The Observer. The press really got behind it. Patrick Collins, um, Hugh McElvenny, some absolutely iconic journalists. Um, my father would 
think the pub and, and alcohol was a regular part of his life. And he, he trained and ran the first marathon, but he would basically be celebrating in a pub and then running home. So actually, I need, in theory, I'm cycling home tonight. Uh, in, in his way, he should be running home. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's how the marathon the, was, was born. It was born in a pub. Uh, and he was born of inspiration of his club members who told him that he needed to go. And he and John were an amazing partnership. John did all the logistical stuff. My father, real force of character and personality. And the two together, you know, where we are now, I think it's incredible. And the fact that we passed one billion pounds being raised for good causes is quite incredible. I don't think it's something that he could even comprehend. He died in 2003. And of that one billion, over 560 million, over half a billion has been the last 10 years alone. So, yeah, what he and John did is, is quite incredible. And, and I'm just delighted to be part of that, that story now. And I guess there's always, as you've touched on, there's always been that social purpose behind the marathon. But from your involvement, and as we kind of mentioned in the intro, you've obviously been involved since the very right at the start when you're... How old were you when the, when the first... Oh, this is going to reveal your age now. How old were you in 81 when, it, when the first one ran? What, 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 what uh, was I your role? Was, I, was the, I was a very important role. I was the, um, the train ticket seller. Were you? Um, so if you <laughs> ran in 1981, I was 16. I was off school. Um, Easter holidays it must have been and I think I got paid something like the princely sum of about £3 a day <laughs> um, to sell 6,300 train tickets Wow! and they cost 50p each and, mm. and, and the marathon had bought them for 47p now, now you get free travel on the underground and on the overground yeah. um, but in those days you had to pay for the train ticket so that's it. what I did, very lofty job and you didn't put any mark upon that yourself then did you you weren't, you weren't you know, <laughs> knowing you as an entrepreneur there'll be a... Yeah, oh. no I was just absolutely <laughs> gutted that I'd been paid a sum total of £9 and I worked out out that I'd made my I'd made the marathon 180 pounds. <laughs> so if you do the calculation of 6,000 times 3p, you can still remember it. It's not that it scarred <laughs> me for life, did it? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I just thought it was a bit unfair. That yeah. was all. No, that makes sense. And so thinking about the history of the event, when did when did you realise that the event had the opportunity to raise so much money for for good causes? Can you remember that time? Or was it always part? Of it, no, it doesn't I don't think it was. Like it. I mean, more from the last ten years, as you've said, but it wasn't necessarily. It was more about putting the event on in the first couple of years and making it happen, and then you saw the, the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, or? I think. I mean, we've done a bit of research on this, and and even it turned out in the first year, the charity was the Lymphoma and Leukemia Research, and they had really good contacts with the TV Times. And the TV Times did a competition and you could sponsor people running the marathon. I mean, we only found this bit out probably three years ago. And mm. they raised a million pounds in the first year. Wow. That's 1981. I mean, that value is, of that today. Oh, it's, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Abs- I mean, absolutely. I mean, we didn't know that story. We did not know that story till probably three or four years ago. Because wow. it's now Bloodwise, isn't it? They're now, yeah, they're absolutely. Now yeah, absolutely. They still have that relationship. Of course, it's they still have that relationship with the TV yeah. Times after yeah. that. So, yeah. so that was absolutely. And then even the second year, Joyce Smith won, was the women's winner in the first year. Amazing athlete. And she became the captain of their charity fundraising. There was a picture of her. I think they showed me a picture of her on the front of the TV Times from 1982, wow. um, where she was talking about, about the marathon. And that partnership that the marathon has had with the BBC, you know, Radio Times, TV Times, that's been an intrinsic part of, of really what's, I think, made the marathon. 
brought it to everybody. It, it's an achievement that everyone, if they want to do, can do. Um, you need to just set your mind to it. You need to set your heart to it. You need to say you're going to do it. And the charity fundraising is a great part of that. And the, the irony of, of staying out of the pub for maybe a couple of months <laughs> while you get your training done, when, it, when originally that was, that was firmly part of it as well. So yeah, yeah, I would actually go, part of the reason an awful lot of us run me included is because we then can go down the pub <laughs> and celebrate the fact that we've been running. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think there was some research when I was working at Sweatshop in, in the 90s that, that actually showed that marathon runners drank more alcohol. Um, I'm not sure I should be saying this, but I mean, drank, <laughs> drank more alcohol than the average person because they were rewarding themselves, um, obviously in moderation, but just rewarding themselves for the, uh, the training that they're, 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 they're done. So, you know, it's part of having a balanced life. And, yeah, of course. And, and that's what we want to encourage. It does such amazing things for mental health and physical health. And you yeah. touched on it there as kind of you've, you've obviously been involved, as we say, in the marathon since 81. You've seen it transition to what it is today. I guess the question is, did you always have an ambition of being involved and being in the role that you are now, or did that kind of come later on in your career? Yeah, no, I absolutely never, never had that ambition. I mean, I'm absolutely delighted and passionate about being in the role and passionate at what we can do. Mm. But I worked at Sweatshop, took it from one store to 43. I probably lived a lot of my life where people have gone, oh, well, you know, it's a destiny and, you know, silver spoon in your mouth and those things, and... I'd worked at Sweatshop and taken it from three staff to 150 staff and we had values and we were passionate about what we were trying to do, help people to be the best they could be. Mm. Um, not everyone is going to win an Olympic gold medal. Not everyone can run as fast as Usain Bolt. Not everybody can be Elliot Kipchoge. Not everyone can be Tatiana McFadden or David Weir. But everyone can be the best they can be and that's mm. actually just an amazing that was the philosophy of sweatshop that's mm. what we would try and do just help people perform the best they could with whatever was going on in their life in terms of they weren't full-time runners but they were committed to being healthy and we wanted to help them on that journey and mm. so i was very happy i'd built something up people understood me they understood what i'd done and actually transitioning to the marathon you're suddenly going into a new world and people are going well you've got it because that is your legacy mm. um, and actually that was one of the reasons the biggest reasons not to do it yeah. why do I want to start go through that again but what I saw I believed was a brand and an organisation that could do more and could go further with its scope and I think we really have got an amazing social purpose now and a social purpose about changing society and that's a huge statement to make that we are absolutely passionate that activity, and this is, you know, all our profit goes to our charitable trust. And we have a combined vision, which is inspiring activity. Our mission is to do it through um, putting on amazing mass participation events and inspiring activity in all demographics, mm. all ages, all abilities, all disabilities. And as much as Sweatshop was a force for good, I believed that... I had the ability and the team would, was there to take the marathon further forward and do more good than I could do at Sweatshop. So that's that's what I wanted to do. We just have to give it a little ting when someone says do more good on the uh, podcast. Thank you for that. Yeah. So take, take us back to that, that first day then when you walked in at London Marathon to take over. Did you feel that the pressure of it being passed on to you or were you confident that you've talked about how you, you knew you could take it further? 
How did that feel, kind of taking on that responsibility and legacy? So I didn't have that responsibility for two years. So in reality, um, you said I was a director from 2007 to 2010. I worked part-time from 2010 to 2012. So I worked alongside the previous race director, Dave Bedford. And so I was the assistant race director. I was sitting in his office, listening to conversations, having projects to work on myself. So Dave Bedford was quite a character, was he not? He was a huge character. Um, <laughs> yeah. most sharing an office with him might have been uh, interesting. Sharing an office with him and, and an awful lot of meetings down the pub. Seems so to be a theme developing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, actually at that stage there was none. And, you know, something I was very aware of when I was being interviewed for the job was the last thing you want to do. You've got a high-performing team. You've got a team that have, have created some amazing events. The last one you, thing you want to do is come in and say, well, that was a load of rubbish, and chuck it and go, well, we're going to start again. That's far, that's the last thing I had, the desire, the mandate, none of those things, and it would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I think that we've really transitioned. There's been a lot of change in the company. When I started, there were 25 people. There are close to 80 now. There are new events. We really have this social purpose. We really have values embedded in the organization. We are committed to maximizing the revenue for charities. Some additional pillars have been put in. There are some six pillars that my father and John Disley put in, and we've added some extra ones since I started. But it's, it's fantastic that the original six are still there. So it, is, it, it has been about an evolution, not a revolution. And it's been about trying to take the staff on the journey because the marathon is about people. It is about the participants, it's about the volunteers, it's about the charities, it's about the staff being committed and putting on something that is quite incredible. But it only happens once a year. You know, uh, it's great to be a figurehead, but that's, that, I'm a spokesperson. Uh, yes, I have a vision for what we should be, but in reality... It is the staff, the amazing team that I have. And I'm not trying to big up Kenneth, because otherwise he's... Um, yeah, of course, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking worry, of Kenneth there. <laughs> Go ahead, we can edit that bit out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, there was no, there was actually no pressure at the start. It was a learning process, and, and the pressure would come you know, on, on, on race day. But it's not really a pressure, because the work's been done. Mm. It's actually my easiest day of the year. It's a very, very long day. But unless something major goes on, which occasionally it has, it should be a relaxing day. Yeah. I mean, we like to give people some insight, I guess, from the people that we talk to on, on the podcast. And we've had some fantastic messages from people recently. A, a lady got in touch with us who'd been listening to the podcast and said that we'd inspired her to think more about her career and where it should go, which, which was great. And obviously, that, I don't think that was us. I think that was our guests. But my point being, kind of getting to the question, thinking back to your early memories as a, as a child or going to, through education... Did you have any ambition for your own career in terms of where it would go or did you have any plan that was laid out for you? Absolutely none. None? Absolutely none. S- uh, racing driver, motorcycle cr- driver? Even that was later. I didn't really? own. My no. passion is motorcycle racing, but I didn't even learn to ride a motorbike till I was 25. So, no, none. All I, you know, I had a very good education, but all I knew is I didn't want to go to university. Right. So of my year, there were 250 people in my school in my year, and I was one of only two people that didn't go to university. Mm. And my parents didn't put any pressure on me, mm. so I didn't know. Uh, I didn't really know what I was good at. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Turned out I was good at retail. I understood the psychology of making a purchase, of giving 
what we call the sweatshop groundbreaking customer service. Mm. So how can you really listen to the customer, understand what the customer wants and surpass their expectations? Uh, and in retail, that can often be very easy to do because the expectations when you shop are usually not very high. Mm. So actually, if you then have some staff that are incredibly well-trained who are passionate about what they do, passionate about helping people to be the best they can be. Mm. So people always say, oh, would you employ X runners? Is that what you do? No, it wasn't. The number one question in an interview would be, you know, what motivates you? And when people said to help people, I like to help people, that would be the number one trigger to actually employ that person. So was that, was that something that you also saw in yourself in terms of wanting to help people? You talked about retail, you talked about excellent customer service. It sounds very people-orientated. Yeah, look, I'm passionate about people, I think, leaving a legacy. Mm. Um, I think probably that's the world I grew up in. Not a lot of people know that my mother won the French Tennis Open, both singles, mixed, and doubles. Mm. She's one of the top tennis players in the world. Obviously, my father was Olympic gold medalist and founded London Marathon. School sports day must have been fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, yeah, I was a disappointment. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I, I always used to say, as a um, if, if anyone, if any of your listeners follow horse racing, then you know you get a dam and a sire, and 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 they mate, and a foal comes out, <laughs> and. Uh, and we're going back to basics here, but but a foal comes out, obviously, and that foal gets sold for a huge amount of money to, because of the uh, how good the, the sire and the dam was. And so, obviously, m- my mother and father were the dam and the sire in this instance, and I was the foal, and I believe as a yearling, I'd have been sold for a huge amount of money. But actually, I'd have ended up in a, in a selling handicap at Bogner in... Uh, glue. And, and, and we'd be glue. That's exactly it. I would be glue. So, so your parents obviously must have been huge inspirations to you growing up. Was there anybody else that you found that's been an inspiration for you, maybe in your later career or, or earlier on? I mean, I love learning. I, I have an inquiring mind. I'm always asking why. Probably very annoying. What's the purpose? Why are we doing it? So, I mean, there's a couple of people that have really helped me in, in, in business in, and in life, which is uh, someone called Miles Protter. And I went to a think tank, a sports trade think tank, probably, I don't know, 25 years ago. And this guy was the speaker and he stood up and he talked about values in business. And this is 25 years ago and that how important values were going to be in the future of business. Wow. And I listened and I got inspired by what he said. And so we sat down afterwards. I think we had a drink afterwards. What a surprise. <laughs> <Of course laughs> <you did. laughs> there's, there's the thread again. Yeah. And I asked Miles to come into Sweatshop and we started to look at our whole values, our mission, our purpose and where I can clearly go, what was our purpose to help people to be the best they could be. Um, That was what Sweatshop was about. And, you know, what was our value was groundbreaking customer service. So it became something that you could clearly articulate, you could clearly remember. And then Miles left and, and we went to Perth, Australia. And he introduced me to someone called Rob Kendall. And Rob is now working with London Marathon um, events. Um, Yep, he's worked with me on Abbott World Marathon Majors, worked with the team at Sweatshop. And again, an incredible man. He's got some books. Blame Storming is one of them. All about listening and all about conversation and the art of conversation. And, And again, talking about values. And we're talking a lot at the moment at the marathon about resilience. And, you know, I'm so delighted that in 2017 the London Marathon became the Mental Health Marathon 
and it's it helped articulate at the end a conversation that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Prince Harry started delivered in an incredibly inspiring way, inspiring way about mental health and the importance of it and the fact that we look at physical health and we it, it's easy to see but mental health has equal importance it's yeah it's been in you know in in, in terms of what he's done and and that resilience conversation is is there's so much pressure these days in work in life put on by the media put on by ourselves to have a fulfilled life but i also passionately believe in the individual and i think that came from my parents that absolutely everyone is an individual so try not to pigeonhole people well not try not don't pigeonhole people it's Mm. as simple as that so yeah i mean obviously my parents rob miles there will be other people I've forgotten. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I read an awful lot of books and um, some people would say too many or, or articles actually often just picking up different ideas to think them through. It leads nicely, actually, Hugh, onto, onto a question. We often talk about the stresses and strains of a professional life now when we've had various conversations with people and guests who've talked about how they deal with, with those stresses and strains. I'm just interested in... An, you know, how how do you switch off? How do you find that balance in in your life? Well, in terms of I means t- two things. One, stresses and strains is is totally just focus on what you can control. Human nature tends to take you to imagine the worst place, the worst thing that could happen, and actually fixate on it. Mm. So, totally understand the worst place it could go, but then start looking at the best place it could go. And actually, if you fixate on the best place it could go, I passionately believe that you can get it to that place. Mm. So understand the worst place, but fixate on the best place. So that is something I really passionately believe. That's something I've got a six-year-old daughter, a nine-year-old daughter. That's absolutely what I'm trying to teach them. Interesting, actually, because I've been starting to try and get my kids to think about journaling, because I think that's the one thing that's become a lot more talked about recently, is kind of actually reflecting at the end of the day and saying... Showing gratitude. What was I grateful for today? And actually yep. journaling down those memories. Because as you say, we tend to kind of focus on the negative and then that can take us down. Yep. But if you're writing down what you've been positive for today, and actually from the kids' point of view, it's good to talk to them about every day. You know, what was positive about today? And make them think about it. But, but I also think from the kids' point of view, what is also hugely important is don't put them in cotton wool. Mm. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest things my dad did is is we went on some crazy crazy expeditions skiing getting lost at night i mean i remember one and and i think i was about 15 and someone looked at a map on a ski resort and decided could you get from one resort to another without realizing there was a mountain range in the way basically (laughs) um so it gets to about nine o'clock at night and it's pitch dark and we've been going since nine o'clock in the morning and some people were breaking down I mean, they were just, just in, you know, just this is what could happen, all these things. And I just, his whole thing was, it will be fine. It will be fine. And 99.9% of the time it is fine if you stay positive. Mm. So, so that lesson is something I'm trying to, would love people to adopt. Focus, mm. focus more on the really positive things. Mm. Stop looking at, stop looking at the, um, the negative things. No, it's good. Yeah. And I guess you don't get the sense of achievement unless you have trekked for 14 hours over a mountain range in the, in the pitch black. Then you get that sense of arriving at the pub in the, other, in the other ski resort. Then you get that sense of achievement as well, rather than having everything handed to you on a on a. You plate. need a bit of stress, right? You need a you bit need of stress to make to the journey kind of 
yeah. fulfilling. Yeah, almost. and then you can, then slowly you know that you can deal with that. You yeah. can handle that. I've been in you know I've been in worse mountain ranges. I've done yep. I've done more than this. That's Absolutely, it. and 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 exactly. You've got back and you're in a nice. You know, you, you've got a fire and you've got a drink and, mm. and, and at that stage I was 15, I was, I was thinking it was more hot chocolate. <laughs> just the halves. It was, it, was, <laughs> it was hot chocolate, I think. Uh, I actually didn't drink until I was 25. I was absolutely teetotal really? until I was 25. Me um, too, me too. Yeah. What happened at 25 that you took up drinking <laughs> and, and motorbike racing? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah I, uh, it was athletics. I was with a bunch of athletes. I ran for Hounslow AC. We ran hard and we partied hard. Um, and, and I would be sitting there with my orange juice and lemonade in a pub as they got gradually more and more inebriated and making less and less sense. And yeah. in the end, I decided I had to join in. <laughs> Couldn't handle it anymore. They broke you. Can't you. beat them. Yeah, sure, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not sure I'm actually should be censored, by the way, this podcast. So. <laughs> so how much, in terms of your career, it sounds like social purpose had quite a big influence in that. It's always been a, a part of it. I think having a pur- absolutely having a purpose and yeah trying to help much more satisfying having a bigger picture that you are trying to deal with trying to change um you know if you're working for a business well okay you could make let's say you could make an extra million pounds or 10 million pounds or whatever it is in whatever business you are well great but what does that do actually change helping to change society helping to improve people's lives helping to inspire people that is what today's society needs that is what not in society needs i believe people want in their work in in their workplace having values and being connected to an organization and being connected to a purpose the ceo of blackrock um, which is the one of the biggest investment companies in the world and there's trillions of pounds has said that they will no longer invest in a company that has no social purpose and that actually, not only that, there is a really good debate going on at the moment about company structure. And companies are set up to maximize their profits for shareholders. And actually, the conversation is that is wrong. They need to look at a bigger picture of society. And society and, the, and doing good um, is what should be happening. And, and we have a greater purpose we have to think about the future. We have to think about our kids. We have to think about the next generation, looking at sustainability, which, again, is another passionate thing that I personally feel connected to. And I know London Marathon is going on an incredible journey and absolutely wants to lead the mass participation industry and help educate people on true sustainability. And it's, it's a, having big, scary goals and targets to go for as well, like looking for something massive. To well, I see you scary. You're looking at the negative side so of it. True. That's they're true. not. They're, 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 yeah. They are fantastically motivating, exciting, challenging goals yeah. that actually you can go, wow. And if you believe you can make a change, you can make a change. It is as simple as that. So... That would be just have self-belief, have determination, keep looking at the positive side, and try, whatever goes on in life, try and look at the positive. Yeah, it seems to be a bit of a change recently. Previously, it was all about marginal gains, taking yep. tiny, and, and now we talk about 10xing something and going for the big stuff instead. Yeah, I still think marginal gains is, 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 is very interesting. We, we worked, London Marathon Events worked on Elite Kipchoge's uh, the Ineos 159 Challenge and working with Team Ineos and Dave Brailsford and, you know, he's one of the yeah. um, original exponents of that. And, and it was a fascinating, again, in terms of a learning experience, it was fascinating to be part of that project. Mm. And again, just a bit of history, you know, my father was the pacemaker to Sir Roger Bannister in, in 1954 when the first sub-4 Mile was broken and 
I think I said at the start of the project, I said, look, I just want to be part of it. I don't care if I'm the leaf sweeper. So actually, in the end, I think that's what my official title was. <laughs> um, but it didn't matter. It's just being part of something, you know, sporting history of what he achieved to, to break the two hours for, yeah. for the marathon and, and, and how that was done through a lot of magical gains and science mm. was, a, was a great experience to be part of. Mm. We'd like to look a little bit to the future now. And we, you know, we all know how special the Virgin Money London Marathon is. Um, but I want to kind of look to the future a little bit. But firstly, Hugh, what, what for you makes the event so special? On, on race day, what are those moments when you have a time to reflect? Well, I have a bit of a ritual on, on, on race day. And I tend to head to the start about 4.30 in the morning and just look over the three different starts, red, blue and green. And, and I go to the red start and go to the far end of it. And you're looking over Greenwich Park and you can see Cutty Sark and the sun is rising over the city. It's quiet, it's magical, mm. and it just is one of those moments that I just love, love, love to do. So there's that, and then just the emotion of the finish line. Yeah, You know, you can't, to, to see the emotional experience that, that, that runners are going through and, and the sense of achievement that people get at the finish line is quite incredible the emotion that they've gone through if, it, if that doesn't bring something to your heart then it's pretty well your heart is made of stone <laughs> um, but you also get just moments of great comedy and, and one of them was I think it was uh, probably 2015 I'm going to get the year wrong but Alex Stewart um, one of the greatest cricket players that, that England has, has ever produced and he's coming down the finish line and he got out sprinted by a man in a full gorilla suit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just thinking, this is one of England's greatest ever cricket. <laughs> and some gorilla has just absolutely lost their last burst of energy. And now you can imagine his finished photograph yeah. of Alex Stewart and next to him is a gorilla. He yeah. took so, his opportunity, yeah. that guy. He, yeah. Did. Yeah. he, he did. I mean, it was, and, and it's just incredible stuff like that so it yeah. is, it I is think the stories that's a really interesting point and I, I grew up in London I grew up not too far from, from Blackheath and anyone that ever ran the marathon when I was a kid would come and stay at my parents house and we would have pasta for dinner the night before and then we would go up as, as little nippers we'd drop them off at the start and we knew it was special we knew it was a, it was a big day for London and then and I still get that I still get choked up thinking about that on marathon morning when we're heading up I still love the fact it's our carnival day. It's London's Oktoberfest. It's you know it's all of those things wrapped mm. up in one. Absolutely, day. you've said it. You've said it perfectly. It's absolutely London's carnival day, Oktoberfest. Mm. It is the most amazing street party, um, where Londoners, people from around the world, are getting behind. It's the biggest street party in Britain, where you happen to have forty-two thousand people who who are running a marathon, while the rest of the the world is having a street party. Seventy-three mm. pubs on the route, and they're all having their busiest day of the year. Yeah. It's the most yeah. amazing feeling, um, and and it is something that is is incredible that the marathon has has done that and done it in in what is a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And what do you think of the future <clears throat> in terms of mass participation events? I mean, we hear a lot from charities that it can be quite tough at the moment in terms of fundraising. But have you, from your meetings, from the conversations that you have with other race directors, is there anything, what's the general consensus around what the future will be around mass participation events and, and their kind of role in terms of helping society get more active? Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think we've started um, in terms of what we can do. And uh, if you look at mass participation events and, and you look at some of the statistics, um, one, it's very middle class. Two, it's very white. 
So it should be available, accessible and inspiring to all of society. And again, that's something that we're really looking at for the future, looking at, at, you know, why can't the history of the London Marathon be taught in schools? We've got some really interesting ideas and won't say too much about what we could do with the mini marathon of the future. Mm. Um, You know, so many people don't even know that the mini marathon goes on before the London Marathon. But we've got some really interesting ideas of... of, um, (laughs) Of, of how we can inspire so many kids and communities. And that's why the big half, I mean, it's something that we are passionate about, that that, that is truly global yet uniquely local. Mm. L- London is an amazing city. Yes, we've got lots of issues, but the diversity, the culture, the, the melting pot of society, food, rest, um, you know, pubs, dance, mm. music, architecture. It's, it's, it's an incredible city. And, and honestly, uh, the one thing I'm not lacking is ideas on uh, what, we can <laughs> do, what we can do in, in, the, in the future because, because I think we have a duty to do that. Um, I think we have a duty of, of something that's incredibly powerful that has changed society. So you really have to look to the future of what you can do. So if you looked at BAME participation in half marathons or marathons in London, it would be about 8%. Mm. BAME demographics in London is 40%. Mm. So that's not acceptable. Mm. Um, what are we doing to change that? And so that's part of work that we're doing. It takes time to change society. So this is not something that you can just snap your fingers and do. But yeah, s- school kids, we're heavily involved with the Daily Mile. Mm. We have, you know, Samo Farah involved. Sadiq Khan has been passionately exposed the benefit of it. You know, we have 40% of 9 to 10-year-olds overweight or obese in this country, nearly 40%. And in London, we have uh, eight of the top 10 worst areas in the country. Now, London is normally better, you would think, in terms of health and fitness, mm. but it isn't. So how, again, can we change that? How can we, we look at the pollution levels in London? How can we get people onto two wheels? How can we get them walking, cycling, running, um, just getting active, which is why it's not about sport. We use the word activity. It's mm. inspiring activity. So, yeah, there, there are, you know, I, I, I just smile at the opportunities that we have to to potentially change society and that's what we want to do and we want to do that with partnerships Mm. we can't do it on our own and we do it with sponsors we do it with charities we do it with individuals but together and that's one of our values as as london marathon events together i absolutely believe we can help make the world a better place cool well there's (laughs) quite a lot of work you've done and it sounds like quite a lot still on the agenda on the to-do list yeah. yeah, I think Sounds that's a nice, a nice moment to kind of wrap it up, though, Hugh. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. But we're not going to... Can I just check one thing, James, at this point? Hugh, have I still got my job tomorrow? Just, just to make sure I haven't asked any questions that you're going to say. I think it's He's going to call me in. Yeah. Well, this is like... This is a role reversal. I've had the last 18 months being questioned by this man intensely. It's nice to sit on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything yet, yet that you've asked me. Um, yeah, that's, that's been too difficult. It's been fun. Good. Um, and again, fun's one of our values, and I think it should be. And that's what we want to carry on making the marathon. If 26.2 miles can be fun, um, which it can be, that's yeah. actually one of the things that people say is an amazingly fun experience. I, I certainly yeah. found 18 miles was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right, but we're not letting you go yet. We've got three quick fire questions for you that we just want your first answer. So, first one is if you could transport yourself back in time to meet your 20 year old self, 
What piece of advice would you give and why? Wow. Can you go to the second question? I know you said it was quick fire, but I, um, as, as you know, I like to be very precise with my answers. So <laughs> let's go to the second, second question, question and I'll come, come back, back to the first one. <laughs> right. I don't do as I'm told. You also know that. Yes, I, I do yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, there might fine. be rules. I just decided they didn't, they didn't count in this instance. Sorry. It's fine. It's fine. So can you tell us about one uh, life hack or productivity tool or skill, habit that you have taught yourself uh, that you think everybody should know about? It's something I try and do, but I don't do well enough, which in order to, well, firstly, in order to listen, you've got to have the time to do it um, and make the time to do it. So people can, will say, have you, got, have you got time for a chat? And if you haven't, say you haven't. Be honest. Um, if you have got time for a chat, then, or, or someone wants to come with you the problem, then you should be absolutely in listening mode. And this is something that Rob Kendall has taught me. He would tell you I'm still terrible at it. But, but there is a technique, and absolutely, don't interrupt people. Be there for them. Take everything out of your mind that you thought you knew. Because if you're truly listening, you know nothing. And at some stage, through a process, try and put yourself in the person's shoes. Get out of your shoes. Get out of everything that you thought. And through conversations that I've had and through... I'm often surprised because people have different worlds and different contexts. So that would be probably my, my life hack. Okay. So we're we going back to question one or we're we going, no, we going to question three? we're going to question three because I'm, <laughs> I'm still struggling with question one. Okay. So question three. As a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, what's your favorite story or inspiring individual that you've met on your journey who has done something good for others? I think I'm going to go with two people to that answer. So Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you mean I just haven't, I haven't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and sorry, guys, sorry. As, 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 a, uh, yeah, as a duo, you're good, but you're not that good. You're not that good. I'm going to go with um, Elaine Wiley and Paul Sinton Hewitt. Um, so Paul Sinton Hewitt is oh, the... Oh, he's had a shout out before on Paul Sinton Hewitt, yeah. Yeah, so Paul Sinton Hewitt, um, founder of Park Run. You know, what Park Run has done is quite incredible. To start with 21 runners at the first Park Run um, and the journey that he's been on, the journey that that, that organization has been on is, is quite incredible. I'm delighted that my ex-CEO at Sweatshop is now CEO of Park Run, Nick Pearson. So I think what he's done and how he's changed society, um, I think he's got a CBE. Yeah, I think. he's got a CBE. I think yeah. he also got an award yesterday. He got, uh, I can't remember the award, but quite a prestigious award for his, his work so yeah and look, that's absolutely it's an incredible movement yeah. and you know is it about the run actually no it's about the coffee and the cake afterwards it's about the, it's it's about a, the group isn't it it's, it's about, about the group it's mm, about the community yeah, exactly yeah. it is exactly what it's about it's about people coming together mm. having a conversation something joined and then Il- elaine wiley she started the daily mile founded the daily mile head teacher in dundee she was looking at her kids and that they couldn't run at all and from that, 15 minutes of exercise every day for primary school kids in their school uniform, in the same shoes. And it has been proven now to have um, better concentration levels, better physical health, better mental health, better grades. It's being adopted around the world. It absolutely should be part of everyday school life. I mean, 
you know, you find out your kids are doing double lessons in like, you know, let's just go with double science. Mm. And that double science lesson is two hours. Mm. I mean, I've waffled on for long enough. How can you concentrate for two hours? Yeah. And this is five, six, seven-year-old kids. Yeah. Take them out for 15 minutes of exercise. So I think what Elaine Wiley and Paul Sinton Hewitt have done is quite incredible yeah. and continue to do. Yeah. So we're going back to the first question. Do you want me to ask it again, give you a little bit more time? Yeah, I go on and ask it again. Go on then. So you transport yourself back, 20-year-old self, more hair, I expect, was that? Oh, it? a lot more hair, yeah. That wouldn't <laughs> be difficult, though. <laughs> what piece of advice would you give yourself and why? I think the advice would be, and it, is, it, it, it genuinely is quite difficult. I think it would be, might be go drinking earlier. Um, don't, don't, wait <laughs> don't wait five a, years. Don't, don't wait for another five years um, is, 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 is one piece. Probably don't be as angry. Um, mm. be, be more patient. Mm. And I still need to do that. I mean, I need mm. to, to learn to, yeah, to, to allow more conversation to happen. We spoke mm. about it earlier about mm. Rob Kendall and what he's trying to help. But it was a great, great learning, I think, from, from Dave Brailsford in terms of the decision-making process that they go on, which is discuss, debate, decide. Mm. And what it does, they have a long phase of discuss and debate before they decide. I, I tend to go discuss, decide. I think I missed the debate <laughs> out. And the discussion isn't very long um, because I've had one in my head for months and weeks beforehand. And so other people might not know that's gone on and it doesn't matter it hasn't gone on because they haven't been part of it. Yeah. So I think it would be just take a chill pill. Yeah. And, and as I say, start drinking a little, you know, why waste those five years? Yeah. Um, you get some great interactions. I mean, that doesn't mean I haven't had great relationships from drinking um, uh, orange juice and, and, and lemonade. But yeah, I mean, look, don't take life too seriously. It's, uh, and have fun. I mean, it's got to be fun. Yeah, I think that's a nice note that we can wrap it up on because I think it's certainly one of the things that we try to do is, you know, in this podcast, I think in life in general, is just have fun, do it with your smile on your face. And even the toughest moments are a little bit easier to get through if you can, you can face that. Yeah. So, yeah, let's wrap it up. Hugh, thank you so much. We normally ask if anyone would like to find you. There's a local. Yeah, I'm not one. sure. I'm not uh, sure anyone needs to, wants to find if me. If anyone's yeah. interested in what you said, I mean, are you you don't do any social media, do you? No, I came off social media when I got the job on purpose. Got, did you? That's, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. Just, you know, um, no. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay, we'll leave it up there. They, they can always go through you, Kenneth. <laughs> they want well, to find they me. Can, tend, actually. You tend yeah, to oh, know, here we you, go. Well, yeah, that's, to, that's you, where yeah. the inquiry is going to come. There now, you go. Anyway. Absolutely. Exactly. Why not? It's good that we've got through that. So, yeah, if anyone wants to speak to Hugh, just send it to me. I'll forward it straight on to him. I'll think about it before I talk to him. Right, let's wrap it up, James. We'll catch up soon. We'll do. Nice All right. One. Take Thank care. Cheers. Bye. So, James just wrapped up another fantastic episode, if I don't say so myself. How did you find it? It's all right, wasn't it? <laughs> If anyone wants to kind of follow up and actually enjoy this thing, where can they find us? Well, we're on Twitter, Kenneth, at Do More Good Pod. Instagram, at Do More Good Pod. Have we gone multi-channel and even gone to YouTube? We have, but you can find all those videos on the website, domoregood.uk. And if you want to contact us by email, please use contact at domoregood.uk. 